I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story. Good evening. Good to be with you all again. Appreciate the opportunity to come and speak for you. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, the Gospel according to Mark. I have kind of an unusual approach to the, to the uh, lesson tonight. I mentioned it to Todd. Um, I didn't tell him what it is yet. <laughs> but foreign words explained by Mark's Gospel. And, and that might not be clear what, what I mean by that. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that. So the approach that I want to take is, is to, to look at how there are occasions in Mark's gospel where he preserves some original words, and then, he, and then he gives sort of a translation of it. And so you'll see, you know, such and such word, which means this. Um, so I want to just look at those times where, where this happens. And of course, our, our English translations, it all, it's all English to us. Um, we don't quite see this. Um, but, but we will notice that some of these words seem foreign to us. And the question is, what's going on here when we see that? And, and through the course of this study, this is sort of be a survey of the Gospel of Mark, in effect, because these, these instances are peppered throughout the Gospel. And so the question we might ask is then, what portrait of Jesus do we see by examining these particular scriptures? So English, we all speak English, that's our point of reference, and, and English is crazy, it's, uh, most of us probably aren't multilingual, I'm not, uh, but English is a melting pot and there's words that, that are just English to us, really have their origins in many other languages, Old English and German and Latin and French and all of these different words, and these become assimilated to us and they just don't seem like foreign words at all, but there are times when we see something like, you know, mi casa, su casa on a, on a doormat, or someone says that, and uh, maybe, maybe all of us are familiar with that, but, but some of us might be, what? Well, you know, that's not really English. I don't know what that means. And, and you know, uh, we might have to have someone explain that. Or, or maybe the fact that that's written in cursive might throw someone off. That's not really taught in schools today. Um, and of course, mi casa, su casa is saying, my house, your house, or mi, mi casa, es su casa, my, my house is your house. Just a, a statement to say, make yourself at home. You know, you are welcome. You know, last time I was here, there was a potluck, and the Henrys had all of us, all of us over, and, and just, they, I don't know that the words were uttered, but the idea was, you know, hey, you're welcome here, and that, and that was very, very kind. And we understand that kind of thing. There may be, maybe a little less uh, familiar to us, vini, vidi, vici. I don't even know if I'm saying that correctly, but Julius Caesar is, is said to have said this after one of his quick victories, and, uh, and pe people will say it today sometimes, maybe after a, 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 a sports tournament where they do well, and they'll, they'll just say this to sort of harken back to the victory that Julius Caesar had. You know, it, we might today say it's kind of a mic drop, where you're just like, hey, this, this was no big deal. I just came there and it just came there, I came, and I saw, and I conquered. It was no big deal. When in fact, it was you know, a, a war, and it would, be, it would be some effort involved in that. But if you're not into history, you might hear someone say that or see that written, and it's like, well, I don't know what that, what that means. 
And so here on the screen, we show it as this Latin quote and then an English translation. And that's kind of what Mark does quite a few times. So let's, let's um, think about, about that, you know, just how we en encounter these foreign phrases in our everyday life. Um, we see some of this happening in Mark's gospel. And it seems that these original words are preserved for some purpose, to show some importance to those words. But we also see that Mark expects his, his Greek readers, of course, Mark wrote his gospel in Greek. He expects that those Greek readers might have some trouble in understanding what those words mean. So then he also them, explains them in Greek, which of course then we see in our Bible says English. So maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. I haven't given any examples yet. Uh, I count nine occurrences of this happening in, in Mark. And um, let's start by listing these off, and then we'll, we'll go and, and treat each of these in more detail. So the first one is Boanerges, and, and that is Sons of Thunder. That's how it's listed there in Mark 3.17. Halitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And maybe these are starting to, to resonate with you now where I was perhaps confusing before. The third one is Korban, that is given to God in, in chapter 7. Also in chapter 7, Ephatha, that is be opened, the occasion where the deaf mute person had his, his healing. In Mark 10, we have Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus. These two phrases mean the same thing in different languages. Abba, Father, Mark 14, verse 36. And then uh, we have in Mark chapter 15, the, the palace or the courtyard, that is the praetorium. Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And then lastly, in, in, uh, at the end of our gospel there in Mark 15, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I struggle with saying these, these things as well because I don't speak these foreign languages, but this is how they're portrayed to us. So let's, let's dig in and look at our first example there, the Boanerges, the first one. So the occasion where this happens is in the appointing of the apostles, and it refers to James and John. Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Mark 3.17. So if we look and get our context and go a verse back there to verse 16, it says, He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and there's also a study to be done there, Simon and Peter, or, or Cephas, as it in John chapter 1, verse 42. But I, I tried to restrict my, my lens here to Mark. Uh, so anyway, I'll start over. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. So James and John, sons of thunder. And then the list of the rest of those, of those uh, disciples there as well. So we see there, James and John are related to this, this, this term, sons of thunder, which is an Aramaic or Hebrew phrase that, that he's preserving there for us to see. We also, as I mentioned with Simon, who's also called Cephas, this idea of rock. Um, and these three guys seem to be singled out. Um, and if you think about that, if you're trying to translate that, and again, it's just in English for us, but, but if you tried to translate all of that, you would say, to whom he gave the name Sons of Thunder, that is, Sons of Thunder. And then we would wonder, well, why is he saying it twice? <laughs> so that's, that's why I think the translators choose to leave that foreign word in there. 
that we can understand that he's using a foreign word and then he's showing the translation of it. Now, why would Jesus give James and John this, this crazy nickname of the Sons of Thunder? And it, it might be that if, as we look in nine, uh, Luke 9, 52 through 55, where the Samaritans weren't accepting the word, James and John are the ones that said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Or perhaps this illustrates kind of their mindset. You know, of course, it says that Jesus turned and rebuked them. No, thank you. We don't need to be destroying the Samaritans with miraculous fire from heaven or, or lightning, thunder, that kind of thing. This might explain uh, the nickname. But of course, over time, Jesus redirects their enthusiasm. And I'll, I'll lump Peter as well in there. And we see those becoming leaders in the church, faithfully serving him. And, and maybe we all have some rough edges that Jesus is working on in our lives as well. Again, James and John, as well as Peter, we, we talk about them as being kind of in Jesus' inner circle. There are three specific occasions where Peter, James, and John are, are with Jesus in these uh, special circumstances. We have Jesus raising Jairus' daughter, which is one of them that we'll look at here momentarily. We have the transfiguration, and then also when they were to be watching with Jesus while he's praying in the, in the garden before his crucifixion. Those special moments we have, the sons of thunder and the rock, all all together there. Speaking of raising Jairus' daughter, that is the next one in our list as we sequentially go through Mark's gospel, finding these examples. This is the Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise in Mark 5.41. If we go back to 5.22, we catch the story. It says there, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now it's at that point, if you're reading in your Bible, it kind of goes into another story where we have this sort of sidebar of the woman with the issue of blood or the hemorrhage or, or whatever different translations describe that. She had this malady for 12 years, and then she touches the fringe of Jesus' garment, and she's healed from that. And then it comes back to, to this story in verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, brother of James. You know, I have a daughter, and she's with me, and I'm so happy that she's with me tonight. But I, I, as I read this, I think, wow, she's not been feeling well, but she's not feeling as poorly as this as this young girl in the story where she was sick to the point of death. Imagine how 
you would feel as a parent. Perhaps some of you have gone through that. Losing a child, I have not. But you can, you can feel your heartstrings being pulled by this situation that Jesus encounters. Let's continue on in verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were there, those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Halitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So this is an amazing miracle, you know, that, that may be part of why these words are, are captured here. You know, this shows that, that Jesus is, is more than the Messiah, which is, of course, something he's demonstrating, but he has the very power of God himself. He's able to raise this girl from the dead. No wonder that the Christians would seek to, to preserve these, these actual words that Jesus spoke in, in Aramaic, it seems, as he broke, brought this child back to life. You know, we, we think about in creation and the, the speaking of words there. And in, in John 1, where in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that refers to Jesus. And these th- things all seem to fit together. It's also interesting that this girl was 12 years old, and, and the woman had her issue for 12 years, and Jesus solved them all. And we kind of have that Mark sandwich where we have capturing that other story within here. Maybe uh, releasing all of these, these uh, people from their maladies, whether it be uh, a health issue or, or death in the family, Jesus can fix all of this, and he does. The next example is the word korban, which is given to God from Mark 7, verse 11. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for dishonoring their parents. You know, Jesus had a lot to say to the religious leaders of his time. And they seem to have an, an arrogance and a sort of a holier-than-thou attitude. And Jesus raked them over the coals often. And we have an example of that here. Mark 7, verse 6. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain. Do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men? You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. We get this idea of this sort of checkbox religion, like, oh, we're, we're, doing, we're doing good things. People, people think we're doing the right thing. We're saying all the right things to sound godly. But what about their hearts? Of course, it says that they're far from God. We have this idea of the commandments or traditions of men being put over 
the commandments of God. And Jesus goes on to give a specific example, which is where we encounter this word. Starting in verse 9, and he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down in many, many such things you do. So these guys were, were doing estate planning, we might say. Well, I've, I've got all these finances, but these are dedicated to God's service. I still have my money, but it, they're dedicated to God's service, so to speak. Put it in quotes, maybe. And this word korban is a word used treasury. It's in Matthew chapter 27, verse 6. We, we see uh, where uh, Judas had taken the money to betray Jesus, and then he regretted and took the money back. And we have them there in Matthew 27, 6, uh, not wanting to take that back. We can't put that into the treasury, and it's, it's really this word korban. It's the price of blood. In that case, they translate it because it's not juxtaposed with two words like this. But these, these people doing this practice, they seemed like, it would look like they're doing a very pious thing, a very godly thing. Oh, we're dedicating all our money to God. But in fact, it's, it's selfishness. It's a loophole. The, the money was dedicated for the future to God. But in the meantime, they can do whatever they want with it. But when mom and dad are poor or sick or homeless or whatever, they would just say, sorry, mom and dad, my money's all dedicated to God. Good luck with that. Good luck with being old. I mean, how disrespectful is that? That's, that's what they were doing. And they, thought, they felt like they were honoring God in that. Oh, we're dedicating our money to God by not helping our parents. They were breaking God's law, dishonoring their parents. So we see... In this occasion, Jesus rebuking and showing his authority to cut through the garbage and show the truth of the matter. Our next example is healing a deaf mute man from Mark chapter 7, verse 34. And the word there is ephatha, that is, be open, the idea of open your ears. Mark 7, verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven. He sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So this word here, ephatha, seems to be an Aramaic word, the common language of the everyday Jewish person at that time. And just like the 
the raising of Jairus' daughter, we once again see Jesus demonstrating his power over nature and over creation of which he had a hand in creating. He's healing diseases. So this word ephatha was apparently the actual word he used in, in working this miracle. The folks were astonished there. Then they make a reference in the last part of that quote, uh, seemingly to Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, where it talks about healing the blind and the deaf and the lame, and the mute, some of the things we see here. Speaking of blind people, our next example is, is Bartimaeus from Mark 10, verse 46. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus. Mark 10, 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. We have another example of Jesus' power over nature. Now if we go back and think about this name, Bartimaeus, um, this one's a little less I'm less sure why the importance of this one being brought out. I mean, the, the amazing miracle, certainly, but as far as why the name is brought out, um, these are just two ways to say that he's the son of Timaeus. Um, perhaps this gentleman went on to be a figure in the church at that time, and, and I don't know that we have an example of, of that in writing, but uh, nevertheless, another example of Jesus his power over nature and over, over health. The next example is number six of our nine in our list. Abba, Father, Mark chapter 14, verse 36. This emphasizes Jesus' close relationship with our Heavenly Father. And there he says in Mark 14, 36, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This, this word Abba is an Aramaic word, again, as many of these are. Uh, it's just the word for, for father that, that the children would say of their father, or adult people would refer to their father in that way. And, and Jesus uses that word to emphasize that, along with showing it here in Greek as well. And here at this point, Jesus is facing death and praying to his Father and needing that, that close relationship. And so we, you know, we need to cultivate that same relationship with our Heavenly Father. And we even have Paul telling us that in Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 17, where it says, 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So these are great words of encouragement. We're to, I think we're to take Jesus as our example in, in his relationship with his heavenly Father. We are, we are not the only begotten of the Father in the sense that he is, but we are adopted as sons. And, and we are instructed here by Paul to have that same idea, to even cry, Abba, Father. Number seven on our list, the palace, that is the praetorium from Mark 15, 16. This is the place of Jesus' suffering before his crucifixion. There in Mark 15, verse 16, it says, The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Jesus was abused and humiliated and mocked, and they were even, you know, as these Roman soldiers, they were parodying how they would say, Hail Caesar. They're mockingly saying, Hail King of the Jews. Sort of pretending in a very mean, violent way to mock him in that way and beat him while they said these things. This word, this palace in the praetorium, we also have that uh, in the New Living Translation where it says the soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters. And that seems to be what's under consideration here. And then perhaps for Mark's readers in another place that didn't know about what was going on in Jerusalem, they used the word praetorium as a common uh, Latin word to understand uh, this sort of uh, military base headquarters situation, a governor's castle, we might say, uh, which is where these things took place. Continuing with Jesus, Suffering, we have our number eight on our list of nine here. Golgotha, which means place of a skull, Mark 15, verse 22. This is the place of Jesus' crucifixion. Mark 15, verse 21 says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And I think the significance here uh, of Golgotha and the place of the skull, this is a place where crucifixions happened regularly. And it was Jesus' turn from the perspective of 
those doing this. Certainly, we recognize the profound importance of Jesus being crucified for us. But we have even this, this word, this place of the skull, being pointed out to us here by Mark. Our last example relates to the words of Jesus on the cross. Number nine, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Mark 15, 34, starting in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. I think the reason for including this is, even in our culture today, we talk about last words, someone's last words uh, seem an important thing. And Jesus' last words is quoting scripture. Also, I think in this context, it explains why we hear these bystanders saying, behold, he is calling Elijah. You know, you imagine, you know, we don't see crucifixions today, but from what I understand, the way that you're dying in that is you're not able to breathe as you're hanging there and you're wearing out. And so it would be really hard to say anything. So whatever he said was probably quiet. And the Greek word for God is theos, which doesn't sound like Elijah, but Eloi might sound kind of like Elijah. And so that is, I think, partly why this is listed here for us. We continue with our reading in Mark 15, 36. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus died for you and for me. He ushered in a new covenant, as it illustrated here, but the the events surrounding his crucifixion with the, the, the uh, curtain being torn. And he is the Son of God, as the centurion confessed there at this event. So what portrait do we, do we see of Jesus as we examine these particular scriptures? We see changing lives as he, he should be changing our lives to be allowing Jesus to change our life, developing leadership and service. We see the power over health issues and even death itself. We see him teaching with authority and modeling that close relationship with his heavenly father, modeling for us to have that relationship as adopted sons. We see him dying on the cross and paying the price for our sins as we think about pointing of the apostles, James and John, we see the development in their character over time, raising the girl from the dead, power over death, rebuking the Pharisees for dishonoring their parents, his authority and teaching, and bringing people to the right. Sealing of the, the deaf man and the blind man, the, the healings over, over nature and health, that close relationship with his father, with Abba Father, Jesus' suffering on the cross, 
and his final words on the cross as well. Let's think again about Jesus' words on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's quoted from the 22nd Psalm. But why did Jesus say this? Why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think it was just because he was prone to quote Scripture. Because he was prone to quote Scripture, but, but I don't think that's the significance here. You know, if we look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him sin, who knew no sin. He made Jesus sin, although he knew no sin, he did no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so I, I think those ideas are connected for those two verses. You know, the idea that when, when God, when Jesus was made to be sin, as it says here, in 2 Corinthians 5, that God the Father could not look on, on that and forsake, forsook him. Just like whenever we commit sin, we're separated from God. Jesus, Jesus committed no sin. He knew no sin, but he took our sin. And I think that's part of what we're to understand in the cross. The Father forsook Jesus on the cross because of my sin, not because of anything he did for your sin and my sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, as it says here, through his atoning sacrifice, his death on the cross. As it says here, be reconciled to God. Don't throw this precious gift in the trash by ignoring his great sacrifice. If there's anything we can do to help you tonight, we have our invitation song here. Was it 304? Why do you wait? If there's any that need to obey the gospel, to put on Christ in baptism, to be part of his atoning sacrifice, to make good on the precious gift that Jesus gave us on the cross, we would encourage you to take hold of that free gift by obeying the gospel. If there are things that perhaps you've gone astray on, um, just like James and, and John, trying to call down fire on the Samaritans like a maniac, you know. Uh, we, do, we do things that are, that are not right, too, and we need to get back on track, and that's what Jesus can do for us. And maybe we can help you tonight if there's things you need, the prayers of the church. However we can help you, we invite you to come as we stand and sing this song together. I love to tell the story Twill be my theme in glory To tell the old, old story Of Jesus and His love